This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been about a month since the city of Denver cleared an encampment of homeless people. It is a soft deadline for those folks to pick up items that crews removed during the sweep. Coming up, how another community, Portland, Oregon, deals with these camps. But first, CPR's Sam Brash explains why Denver has created a lost and found for people who are homeless. Robin Kendrick came to Denver from Reno, Nevada, about four months ago. He spent most of that time camped at an intersection near Coors Field in downtown Denver. The sidewalks there are mostly clear now, but that wasn't the case a month ago. Dozens of people used to camp there because of its easy access to shelters. And when they did, they often left food, bedding, and sometimes needles in public spaces. So Denver cleared the encampment. The city said it had become a public health hazard. Before that, they kind of left everybody alone over there. Now it's move, move, move. Kendrick has been homeless for more than 10 years. He's moved around a lot. Minnesota, Nevada, California, Colorado. And he's also restless in the moment. He says he needs to shift his weight back and forth because of an accident that left him with nerve damage. When we met, he'd found a spot to camp with a group next to the South Platte River. Just above that spot is a construction site for high-end townhouses and condos. He didn't stay there long. A police officer came by and asked him and his group to clear the bike path. Yeah, everything's getting put into carts or wagons or a way to move it. And if there's not enough people to move all the stuff at one time, they, they'll actually stop and then throw it in the dumpster. The packing proved easy for Kendrick. I have a backpack. They just gave me a sleeping bag today. He nodded to his traveling companions, who gave him the sleeping bag. And I have a jacket over there, and that's it. Everything else, I have nothing. It's all been stolen, or they took it away and threw it in the trash, or wherever they quote put it. That place where the city quote put it, or maybe put some of it, is a garage in an out-of-view school building. It's where the city has stored belongings collected during the March 8th sweep. Peek into the window, and you'll see a long row of trash bins. They were new, clean receptacles. I want to be clear about that. That's Julie Smith of Denver Human Services, which helped develop the inventory system. So far, only one person has used it to reclaim their stuff. But Mark Silverstein says temporary storage is a constitutional necessity. He's the legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Colorado. Property is property. The city uh, cannot legally just confiscate property and destroy it. Smith says the city kept that in mind when it cleared the camp last month. There was no way we were going to go out and try to clear this encampment without offering the opportunity for people to have their items stored and for them to be able to come and retrieve those. But the storage facility is only open from noon to two on weekdays, around the time that local shelters serve meals. Silverstein thinks those hours could put people in a bind. It would be too bad if the city is forcing a a poor person to make a choice between um, getting a meal uh, or retrieving their property. There isn't any evidence that's happened, but it can be tricky to reclaim possessions. You need to give either a receipt for an item or a super precise description. Now Denver plans to keep the garage open longer than the 30 days it planned on. 
That's because of holidays and because the city continues to collect unattended property at that original intersection near Coors Field. Portland, Oregon has had a similar storage facility for years, but that effort, like Denver's, has proven unpopular with the people it aims to help. Kendrick, for his part, says he hasn't tried to get his stuff because he doesn't trust the city. They say they're putting in storage, but, you know, I think they're throwing it away. And when I go to a shelter at night? Get sick. It's uh, sardines in a can. That puts him in a category called service-resistant homeless people, a term the city uses for people who choose to sleep outside even when they have other options. But a handful of service providers in town says Denver lacks a master plan that includes people like Kendrick, who don't want to be in a shelter. For now, Kendrick is on to the next place. He helps test a bike trailer packed with tarps and food. It works for a while, and then tips over. They're trying to get to a private storage unit they've heard about. If they can't get there, they'll have to find another place they can rest and keep an eye on their things. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. All right, we've heard there how Denver deals with homeless camps. Let's hear about a city that takes a different approach. Portland, Oregon, declared a housing emergency last October. That's because it, like Denver, has seen rent skyrocket, which has forced some people onto the streets. The long-range plan in Portland is to build more affordable housing and to add beds to shelters. But in the short term, Mayor Charlie Hales has decided to sanction camps in parts of the city. His chief of staff, Josh Alp joins us from Portland. Welcome to the program, Josh. Thanks for having me, Ryan. As we just heard, Denver cleared a camp of homeless people last month. Portland, like Denver, I understand, has an urban camping ban, but at the start of the year, you and the mayor changed how it's enforced. Can you briefly walk us through the new approach? Sure. The whole premise behind it uh, was the mayor really getting to a point of saying that until we can finish the sentence, you can't sleep here, but... Uh, that we should take a very different approach to how we move people around the city. And after kind of researching why our sweep laws had evolved over time to where they were, we recognized that law enforcement really never had a tool to distinguish between people on the street. Uh, And by that, I mean those who are legitimately out there trying to find a safe place to sleep versus those that are out there for other purposes. And so the whole premise behind creating our new policy was to give uh, everyone on the street as many options as we could about where they could go to sleep uh, with the idea being that if someone said no to all those options, that was an opportunity for us to dig a little bit deeper and find out why that person was so service resistant and how we could then either bring enforcement or more intensive services to those to those people who would say no to the options that we were giving them. Um, the options then became uh, sleeping on sidewalks, which people are now allowed to do at night, but no tents or structures whatsoever. Uh, the second option is, you know, let's be honest, it rains a lot in Portland. People do need some tents. Um, so we created a policy saying that for rights of way and remnant properties throughout the city, people were allowed to have tents up at night in small groups, but uh, tents had to be down by seven in the morning um, so that they weren't staying there all day. And then number three 
was uh, a sanctioned camp system that we're working on now. And number four is for cars and RVs to have uh, scattered site parking and then manage camps as well. Mm. Let's break some of those options apart. Uh, And as I said, this was something of a change of philosophy for Portland, Um, allowing people to sleep on sidewalks, allowing them to sleep on right-of-ways, for instance, and to develop a camping uh, system in the city. Uh, Has that been met with resistance? Uh, It has, of course. Uh, It is anytime you switch a system uh, I think there will there will always be people um, confused and trying to figure out why. So we really have gone through a couple of months of uh, pretty deep-seated education, both for those on the street uh, and for neighbors around the city as well. It sounds like you want people to be able simply to sleep, uh, that this is a different approach to the evening hours as to the daylight hours. That's correct. And really what this boils down to is the city moving away from camping anywhere in the city other than, you know, sanctioned camps that we're working on and going from camping, which we're not going to allow or tolerate because of the public safety and health risks that come with those camps, uh, to a system of allowing for safe sleep, which we do believe is a a constitutional right that everyone should have access to. Okay. And what would this uh, system of sanctioned camps look like? It sounds like you're still developing it, but... uh uh, paint a picture of what you imagine. Sure. And we, ha- we have two camps right now that grew kind of organically uh, and came to the city asking for some assistance. And this was last fall. Uh, and so we decided to experiment a little bit with those camps and figure out, one, did they have capacity to self-organize and run the camps themselves? Uh, and then two, what would the interaction be with the surrounding neighborhoods? And um, you know, those camps, I think, have proven relatively successful. We've learned a lot from both of them. And so the new system uh, will be a camp similar to that that is largely self-organized, but on land that the city approves. Um, and we're scouring the city looking for those kinds of land and then having a management function in those camps. Um, so they're essentially going to function like outdoor shelter. Will they be enormous? No. Uh, and and we've learned that, you know, really having about 20, 25 to 30 people is about the maximum for any particular site. Uh, and when you talk to the folks living in the camps that we have right now, that's about the size that they're comfortable with as well. Do you think you'll run into the, the NIMBY concept, not in my backyard? What of the person who lives across the street from that property or has a business across from that property? Sure. Um, you know, I think in, in all of the work and all of the cities that are addressing this issue, which really are pretty much every city in the country right now, there will always be the strain of, of NIMBYism. But here in Portland, and much like I'm sure in Denver, we also have a huge strain of compassion that runs through our cities. And so I think once people have kind of warmed up to this idea now, we're really getting overwhelmed with emails and phone calls from neighbors asking how they can help. Uh, we're also uh, working with neighborhood associations on toolkits of a variety of options that they can do to participate in this uh, and to welcome their neighbors who may be living outside. Uh, And we really are at a tipping point, I think, right now with the compassion that we're seeing in in neighborhoods all over the city. The other thing that I think is critical, and we've learned this from San Francisco in particular, is that each of these are time-limited. So they don't go on forever and neighbors have a sense that at some point this camp or uh, this particular shelter will close. I want to say that I think it's possible both to not want 
something like that right across from your business or home and have compassion. I think that those folks would argue that that, uh, they're not necessarily without compassion. The Business Alliance in Portland has called this new plan not a safe or sustainable situation for anyone. And uh, we have seen in Denver that much of the business community continues to support the camping ban to keep storefronts safe and inviting to customers. Um, how, how do you respond to those kinds of comments? Well, I think on, on a, a higher level, we would agree with businesses and neighbors that camping, uh, people being outside, really is unacceptable. Our point back to uh, the Business Association and others has always been, we get that, but it's a simple math problem right now. We have about 2,000 people sleeping outside on any given night, and we don't have 2,000 bed spaces indoors for them to go. So what should we do today? Um, would you recommend to other communities this idea of, of allowing sleep in specific areas? I, I would. Um, and we do believe that the law is headed in this direction. There was a Department of Justice opinion in a case in Boise last year that really started to tip the hand, we think, of the federal government. We know that there are some court cases winding their way through the judicial system right now that really are going to end up with some sort of law requiring cities who don't have enough indoor capacity to allow people to the right to sleep outside in places. And in Portland, we're trying to get ahead of that and create the system. Where do people put their stuff during the day? Well, and it's a great question and really a key component uh, for us in order to make our new system work. Uh, We have, much like Denver does um, when we conduct sweeps, we have a a legal requirement to keep possessions. And much like Denver, that system hasn't been working very well. People generally don't go to the storage place to pick up any of their belongings. Um, But what we then decided to do was to actually bring storage to people. And so we're running a pilot program right now with uh, two-day storage units. And if you can, picture uh, about 50 to 52-foot cargo boxes Uh, that we had retrofitted so that you can wheel a shopping cart into the bottom level and then put shelving on top of all of that. Uh, We're running two different models right now, one at an area under one of our bridgeheads downtown that, um, you know, is a congregating point for our houseless community, uh, and then one that is in one of the experimental camps just to see how they're used and where, uh, as we grow the system, they'll be most helpful. These boxes come not just with storage capacity but also with portable potties, excuse me, and with sharps containers as well as tons and tons of outreach information, pamphlets, um, shelter information. The one that's downtown is staffed in the morning and in the evening by um, providers so that there's also the ability to do some uh, service triage uh, as well. We just ordered our third container uh, and that one will also be downtown near uh, our newest shelter that we're working on opening. Uh, It'll be a nighttime shelter. And so the idea there is that as people are leaving in the morning, they can check their stuff in, uh, come back anytime during the day because we're going to operate that one, I think, throughout the entire day rather than just in the morning and the evening and see how that model works as well. As you say, these are, to some extent, temporary fixes until more permanent solutions can be found, at least for those who aren't service-resistant. That's a term I've learned today, uh, as our fellow Robin Kendrick was in Sam Brash's story, uh, until you can add more shelter beds and affordable housing. Thanks so much, Josh, for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Josh Albert is chief of staff to the mayor of Portland, Oregon, and has led an overhaul of that city's policies on urban camping.
When we come back, easing the pain of divorce for families with children. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What if divorce could be less stressful for couples with kids? That's the goal of the Center for Out-of-Court Divorce in Denver, which opened in the fall. The nonprofit is a kind of one-stop shop. Mediators there help develop parenting and financial plans, and counselors help families with the emotional challenges. Sue Carparelli runs the center. She says she based it on research into what does and doesn't work, and she looked to Australia, which... Established relationship centers in recognition of the needs for support for families in transition. The center charges a flat rate, $4,500, though there's help for families that can't afford that. A divorce involving lawyers typically costs between ten dollars and $30,000, although if a couple uses just a mediator, it's less than that. In a few minutes, we're going to meet a retired judge who comes in at the end of the process to finalize these out-of-court divorces. But first, let's hear from someone who has had an out-of-court divorce. Dr. Megan Quinn used this center, and a welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Help us understand what you had to work through. You have four kids, and what were the circumstances that led to your divorce? Um, yeah, so we, my ex-husband, uh, JP, is also a physician. He's an emergency medicine phys- physician. Um, I have two kids from a previous marriage, and then JP and I have two kids together. Um, so I would say when it came time to work through this, we really wanted to... Um, sort of honor our intentions as a family in terms of um, co-parenting and the family that we had created, um, you know, just the love that we have for the kids. I think more than anything, um, divorce can be a process that brings up a lot of fear and a lot of anger and vulnerability. And to have sort of um, this centered really guide you through that made a huge difference for us. And what were your intentions? You talk about wanting to be true to those, even through the divorce. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is somebody that you created a family with. It is somebody that um, you are forever going to have a relationship with because you are parents together. And figuring out how to start building the relationship that you're going to have for the remainder of, you know, um, your lives is really important. We created that family with um, the intention of, you know, really, I would just say operating from a place of love and sort of figuring out how to honor um, this person as not only, you know, your former partner, but also the parent of these children. What I find um, fascinating about that, Dr. Quinn, is that you're saying that divorce is not just the end of a relationship. It's the creation of a new one absolutely, with new terms. And so your divorce was finalized earlier this year. What is the main reason that you and your ex-husband chose the out-of-court approach? So we had a friend who had worked with the center. Um, and again, I think we have had, as all of us probably have had, friends who have gone through divorces in other formats um, that have been really contentious and difficult. And I think everybody pays a huge, huge price, Um, not just you as grownups individually, but also ultimately, I think, the children. Um, So for us, it was really, really important, um, you know, in 
acknowledging that, yes, this was the end of one part of our relationship and sort of the end of what it looked like at that point. And then moving forward, um, really uh, just creating what do we want to create now and how do we want to do it? Including a custody plan. Absolutely. Including a parenting plan. And a financial plan. Yes. And these were both things that you turned to the center for. We did. Yeah. And do you feel like the resolution was... uh, uh, agreeable to both parties. Absolutely. I mean, I think we came into this, I, you know, the premise of working with the center is also two people who are willing to work together as um, a new partnership, you know, so both individuals. I don't think that the center is set up to do a lot of um, contentious mediation, but, you know, we came into that process really looking for help to guide us through um, how how do we make all these decisions? There are legal decisions, there are parenting plan decisions, you know, in terms of custody and vacations and schedules and this and that. And then there are these other financial pieces. And really, I think um, just acknowledging, you know, that these things bring up a lot of, I think divorce can bring out the worst in people. Um, And JP and I both are um, really really good friends. We're really good friends to each other. Um, I also think that we really honor and respect who each of us is to the children. And so you started from a pretty good place, which is uh, more than some couples, I'm sure, can say. Um, What about the counseling services, especially for the kids? And and let me say that the Center for Out-of-Court Divorce is focused on couples that are splitting up with kids. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So we actually utilized... um, a six-session counseling series for our younger children, which, as I was actually mentioning to Judge Hyatt earlier, my younger fellow is um, really worried about ending because he loved it so much. Um, uh, He calls it his club and doesn't want it to end. And I think it really speaks to how well they have done in terms of, you know, holding that space for the children. Um, What was the biggest issue that they had to tackle with the kids in terms of counseling? You know, again, I think we were not in a situation where there was a lot of fighting or arguing in front of the children at all. So I actually think for our children, um, the biggest issue that they had to tackle was really naming this and acknowledging that our family was going to look different than it had in the past and that it may look different from some of their other friends and really giving them a voice, I think, for that. You know, I think there are ways in which we can do that as their parents, but no matter what, you know, at the end of the day, this is not how we wanted this to look. This is not how you, you know, when you marry somebody, you don't intend to end that marriage. Neither is that the what the children want it to be, even if it is as amicable as possible. That even in that climate, there is some explaining to do and some context to 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 uh, have the kids aware of. You mentioned uh, Judge Hyatt. That's Judge Robert Hyatt, a retired Denver District Court Chief Judge. And uh, Judge Hyatt, explain your role at the center. Sure. I volunteer my time to the center. And I come out to the center about once a month and hear permanent orders hearings there as opposed to in a courtroom somewhere. Uh, I am appointed by Chief Justice Nancy Rice of the Colorado Supreme Court to handle these cases. And we do 
exactly what a judge would do in vetting or viewing uh, permanent orders hearing in a courtroom, except it's not in a courtroom. It's more relaxed. It's conversational. But I go through the plan, the parenting plan and the settlement agreement, and I have to make sure that the parties are on board with this plan, that it is their plan, and also that it is fair and equitable, and most importantly, that it is, in fact, in the best interest of the kids. You had some experience, I'm guessing, in your career with in-court divorces. How do, how do these differ besides the, besides the venue? Ryan, it is night and day. It is such a pleasure to sit in a room with parents who have crafted their own parenting plan and who understand that this marriage may be over and that they will be divorced, but they are parents forever and they have to formulate a way to parent into the future. Frequently, litigation builds upon acrimony. It accentuates acrimony. And in court, you find people criticizing real and imagined parenting skills of the other party, um, viewing this process as something that is a battle, that is warfare, and as opposed to what what they do at the center when they are really working hard to co-parent together. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the new Center for Out-of-Court Divorce in Denver, which opened in the fall. And if you hear some occasional uh, clanging and pounding in the background, it's because there's some construction going on here at CPR News, and that might be making it into the microphones. To what extent, Dr. Quinn, was this about saving money, saving time? For us, it certainly was not about saving time. In fact, we started working with the center when they were still in their pilot time um, through the through DU. So it actually we started working with them in the spring of 2014. So in, ter- in terms of our timing, it was it di- it didn't save us time only because neither of us felt um, incredibly pressed in terms of getting everything done. I think more than that, we really wanted this process to be. Um, one that was not involving lawyers and not involving courts and as much as possible staying connected. and That was the priority. And let me say absolutely. that this started as a pilot out of the University of Denver. Um, and so is this something that you recommend to your friends? I'm not sure if you have friends who are getting divorced. Maybe maybe you don't live in that circle. I thought you were going to say you weren't sure if I had friends, but I, um, I do. We have um, – I mean, you know, unfortunately – I think it's a, it's a rare exception for folks um, with kids, our kids' ages, to not know anybody going through divorce. But I do. And in fact, I have recommended it to a number of people because I think, um, you know, what I tell people is that, again, I think, you know, looking at how do you want to start, who do you want to be to this person going forward and how do you want to build that? And I think operating from a place that is not out of fear is the way to do that. Judge Hyatt, there are circumstances, I guess, that are not right for this venue. I'm thinking of relationships in which there might have been a history of domestic violence, for instance. Are are there other scenarios in which an out-of-court divorce is inappropriate? Sure. Domestic violence is an important one, but there are many forms of domestic violence. There, It may be that for parties where one has bullied the other emotionally, economically, and a long history of uh, inequity in the relationship, that a courtroom is the appropriate place to protect the rights of both parties and to make sure it's a level playing field. 
But for the vast majority of people who are just struggling with how they will move forward as parents after a divorce, uh, we think this is a far better alternative. That is Robert Hyatt, retired Denver District Court's chief judge, and Dr. Megan Quinn, who finalized her divorce through the Center for Out-of-Court Divorce in Denver, which started up in the fall. And we'll be right back with early season answers to your gardening questions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This week's rain may have you dreaming of ripe tomatoes, rows of lettuce, and fresh herbs in your garden. Here to get us ready for the season is Larry Stebbins. He directs Pikes Peak Urban Gardens in Colorado Springs and joins us regularly to share tips and trends. Welcome back to well, the Well, thanks, program. Ryan. It's great to be back here. You know, I'm, I'm from Colorado Springs, but I love coming up to the uh, Denver area. You know, you guys are a couple weeks ahead of us in your season. Oh, yeah. So, you know, things are blossoming a little faster and so on. So I'm a little envious in a sense. Well, welcome to our microclimate, Larry well, Stevens. Yeah. Uh, it has been warm. We are finally getting some rain, but we could still be fooled by the weather. Well, we sure can. I, I think of the famous Mother's Day hailstorm that could still <laughs> strike. Well, I don't know if you remember last year, Ryan, um, in the first week in May, we had some bitter cold weather that really set a lot of us back, and we weren't expecting that. So, you know, I'm telling people, uh, you know, be optimistic, but plan for Mother Nature taking a twist here. So. Okay. So how, how are you both optimistic and plan for the worst? Well, uh, season extending. You know, uh, a one-gallon milk container with the bottom cut out, you know, one of those kind of milky looking ones. Yeah. Believe it or not, the lid off and cut off the bottom set over a new transplant like a, a kale or a broccoli can really save you uh, a lot of money uh, and having to replace that in case we have a downturn in the weather. Oh, right. Because that would protect it both against hail and cold weather. And cold weather. And then in a couple of weeks, you remove that container and the plant is fine. Is milk container the only approach, or are there others? Well, there's a there's a commercial thing that costs a little money. It's uh, it's called Walla Water, and it is actually a uh, cylinder, but it has little tubes uh, that are around it that you fill with water, and then you place it over your. It's an open cylinder on both ends, and you place it over your plant, and the water gets warmed by the day's sun, and then uh, moderates the temperatures at night. So that's very helpful as mm. well. Okay, you've mentioned some crops already. Uh, what are some of the things that can go in the ground right now? Well, the, the things we tell people right now before, the, you know, the last frost hits is leaves and roots. Leaves okay. and roots. We'll make it simple. Um, so those things that you eat the leaf or eat the root, those are the things that you can get in now. And, uh, you know, the things like spinach especially um, and field greens, as you can see here. I brought in a, a tray, and we'll talk about those a little later. Um, these can all go in the garden. And uh, so the, the leaves, and of course, lettuces, some lettuces are not hardy. I recommend people buying a mix of lettuce seeds because then some of them will survive if we have a downturn in the weather. All right. What are hardier varietals? Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure which ones uh, might do the best, but mostly the dark-colored leafy ones okay. tend to survive very good. The ones that uh, that are, um, I guess, more like the iceberg type, which we don't plant too much of around here, uh, they, they're a little less hardy. They tend to like warmer weather, but the exact variety I... Uh, there's so many that I, you know, I, 
I could talk about a number of them. The darker, the better, though. I, well, dark ones do survive well, but there's some others that do well. Any of the oak leaf lettuces that you see here uh, that have kind of an oak leaf look to them. You have brought but, us a bouquet of yes, lettuce for here. you to taste and, and think. Uh, so those do well. But the, don't forget your kale, collards, and, uh, you know, do really well. And chards are great to get in this time of year. Mm. And if you get them as a plant, just put that milk jug over the top of them or something similar to uh, to modify the weather until the mother nature decides to stay around in a nice uh, warm warm stay till the end of the season. Potatoes? What about potatoes? Potatoes. Yeah, and those are the root thing. We they are actually not roots, as you know. T- tubers? Are tubers? They're tubers. Uh-huh. They're actually underground stems, and potatoes should go in. I've planted mine down in Colorado Springs already, and uh, the varieties are out now. So buy them at your local nursery shop uh, because this is the time to get them in. Get them down about three inches in the soil and cover them up, and you should be good to go. I'm glad you mentioned soil because soil yeah. prep is part of this, isn't it? It's huge. It's huge, and we tell people, you know that the best time to prepare your soil is in the fall. But, you know, um, some of us uh, get, get a little behind the eight ball or in front of it or whatever they say and uh, didn't get, quite, get, it, get it done. So what we tell people is now is not the time to add animal, manu- animal manures to your soil, um, especially if it's fresh animal manures because they take time to break down and get incorporated into the soil. Okay. So we tend to tell people to use organic vegetable-based products into your soil. And there's a number of them on the markets that you can get that are ready to use, ready to assimilate into the soil and be ready to go. Vegetable-based soil. They're just as Vegetable-based amendments. <clears throat> For example, there's one variety out there. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the, the variety. It's called Yum Yum Mix. Um, and you'll see that when you look at it, it's made with alfalfa meal. And it's made with uh, a number of different mineral products. It's, and it's organic. Um, and, uh, you know, it has um, some cotton meal in it, cottonseed meal. These all break down fairly quickly and uh, give your plants a little boost. And it also gets the soil a little more friable, a little more crumbly. I want to ask about a food trend right now. Sure. Microgreens. You know, it, people are starting to discover, you know, and I mean, some of us, when we go into a restaurant, we used to remember the days when you used to get just iceberg or romaine. Uh-huh. Iceberg being, you know, that nice round head of lettuce that was so crisp and crunchy and kind of a light green. And then the romaines, which are the leafy types that are great in Caesar type salads and things. And they're very good. Uh, and, you know, the, the whole thing is they tell you the darker the lettuce, the darker the greens, the healthier it is for you. And even the red ones tend to be a little healthier than the green ones. They have some anthocyanin pigments, which tend to be higher in antioxidants, which could be beneficial to your health, perhaps. Ah. So, you know, so we tell people plant a variety. And field greens are basically those, a mix of greens that, that, that will just delight your palate. And what I did is I brought here into the studio, it's just a seed tray. It's okay. only about two inches deep. All right. And it's about 18, you know, it's, well, it's about 12 feet wide by 20 inches long. And in here we have probably growing up about six inches high, a mix of all different types of kales, collards, bok choys, lettuces, mustards, my Zunas, I mean, just about everything you could want. And what, what I tell people, if you've got a small area, I want to show you how much you can grow in a very, very small space. With some space planning. Yeah. In previous conversations, you have brought your model garden. Yes. Because you stake out exactly where... Uh, individual vegetables will go. Will go, yeah. Yeah, and, and so in this, uh, what, 12-inch, what did you say, 12 by? by about uh, 20. 20-inch. Yeah, it's a regular seed tray. How many different, I'm counting at least six, seven? Different different varieties different of varieties? plants. There's yeah. probably about 20. 
if you really get into here and take a look at the different varieties. And what makes a green a microgreen? Well, you, you harvest it when it's small. And that's the thing is, and these are a little taller. I wanted to keep them around for you guys so that you could taste it. I'm going to be using these in salads myself. Okay. I'm leaving you with some greens that you guys can use in your salads that I've harvested that are a little larger. But I wanted to show everybody what you can grow here. Now, these are planted very tight, very, very tight. The reason is you want to harvest them small and be done with it. So microgreens are good to crowd, if you will. They're good to crowd. You harvest them when they're about two to three inches tall. You give them a cut about a half to, to one inch above soil level. They will grow back once and stay good. And then you can harvest it again. And then usually you take that and compost it. Is there something we should taste? Is well, there something you know, there's one here that I, you know, do you want hot? Do you want... Uh, Ooh, hot. Yes. I okay. want hot lettuce. I think, well, this is a mustard. I think this is my hottest mustard right there. That one right okay. there, Ryan. I'm just going to yank it off here? Yeah, let me just do that. Okay. So I think that's one of my hotter ones. Is it? Oh, that is peppery. That's, that's a, peppery, yeah. Indeed. Yeah. And then I've got some mild mustards. It's really, it's a filigree leaf and it's purple. How beautiful is that? It is not your typical lettuce leaf. It looks a bit like Mizuna, I think. It is. It's a, and, it's a, it's a type of, it's somewhere in between, a, a, and I'm not exactly sure what that is. It's probably a, a filigreed Mizuna, so a mild Chinese mustard. But what's nice about what you've created here is a balance of flavors. And colors. And colors because of how much you've planted in such a small space. Well, here, try I, some bok choy. I mean, that's okay. got a, that is a mild, a mild in the cabbage family. That's just a nice addition if you want something crunchy. Um, and that'll balance well with the spicier. I, I want to talk about another trend, and that's yeah. grafted plants. But yeah. why, don't, why don't we have you answer that after a break, shall okay. we? A little Sounds cliffhanger. Good. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Larry Stebbins, Master Gardener, is back with tips and trends ahead of growing season. Uh, back in a moment on CPR News. I am munching on some peppery arugula with Larry Stebbins, director of Pikes Peak Urban Gardens in Colorado Springs. He joins us regularly to talk about gardening. And um, you told us about the trend of microgreens before the break. Let's talk about this other trend, which has to do with grafting plants. You know, it, seems, it sounds so medical. I, I know it does. Uh, you know, it's basically taking the top of one plant and growing it on the bottom of another, usually a hardier plant on the bottom. Could you do this with like tomatoes? Well, it's first, it, you know, it seems to be more popular with tomatoes than it is just about with any other vegetable right now. Um, and uh, there's a reason for it. But just, just to give you a little background, uh, in 2011, only about 40,000 grafted tomato plants were sold in the United States. Now it's well over a million and growing fast. Um, and the reason is, is you've got a tomato here that I'm leaving with you. This one is called red fig. Okay. And uh, there's a story behind that. Maybe we'll get to a little later if we have time. But this is an heirloom, and it's not particularly hardy in cool weather. Of course, no tomatoes are hardy in cold weather, mm. but in cool weather, some don't like it. So if you take the top of this red fig, because you may like it, and graft it onto a cold, hardy are a cool hardy tomato like uh, one of the Siberian varieties that are used to cool weather, mm. that this top will grow much faster and much healthier than it otherwise would in our cool soils. So is the grafting something I can do as a yes. home gardener? It's real simple, as a matter of fact, and the YouTube has quite a few things. You just basically take and chop the top off this off of this one. You have your, your Siberian perhaps growing. You chop off all, uh, maybe three or four inches of the stem you leave with no leaves on it. Then you cut a... You, you basically cut a, uh, 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 just slice the stem down about a half inch. So you just part it. And then the top one that you're grafting to it, you make it into a little point, like a little arrow point. And you just 
put them together, and then they have a little clamp or you can just somehow seal it. But we use a little grafting clamp that costs about two or three cents a piece. So that's a specialized item, a Yeah, but you could clamp. do it with just anything, a little plastic bag around it and just tie it up. Okay. And then you leave it uh, for about two or three weeks and uh, till that graft heals, and then you're ready to plant it outside. And is it often successful, mostly successful? Well, that, that's, a good, that's a good question. Now, I'm uh-huh. going to say a little, something that, that might surprise some of our listeners, but it's not that successful in, in our high-altitude areas because we go from cold to hot very quickly. We don't have an extended cool season because, as you know, we talked about, sometimes it's warm like now, and then it'll bounce into very cold. So you can't have it cold. You can have it cool. So back east where the springs come on gently, gently, you know where you have a long period of maybe 45, 50, 60 degree temperature before the warmth? These do exceptionally well because they take advantage of the cool weather. We can't get ours out in the cool weather because of the chance of it going really cold. So for us, it doesn't help us as much. As much. But yeah. you, you'd still encourage gardeners to try it. I think it would be a fun thing to try. And this, this red fig, is that what you call the tomato? It's, it's a red fig. This is an heirloom, which means that the seeds have been around for a long time. And I'm leaving this with you guys and, uh, to grow. It, uh, back in the, uh, it was introduced back in the late 1700s, but it didn't become popular till the mid-1800s because uh, many, many Americans found out that if you dried this little pear-shaped red tomato, it tasted a little bit like a fig. Mm. And the thing is, they couldn't get figs back then during the winter months, so it helped them when they wanted something sweet and dried that they could just munch on. This was the tomato that they would grow. And you could still do that today. You can. If you wished. Let's take some questions from our listeners. Um, so this first one comes from Ali McRae, who lives in Boulder, uh, just outside, actually, in the foothills. Ali has tall brown grass and, quote, wants a nice green lawn. (laughs) Allie is not landscaping savvy, according to the email. What advice do you have? Well, I'd say, you know, there's a couple things she can do. First off is uh, sometimes the tall brown grasses can be native grasses. And if, you know, for a lot of people, it's great because they're usually hardier and they'll, but many of our grasses that are native don't green up very quickly. Mm -hmm. Like the old bluegrass that sometimes stays green all winter long. You know, sometimes it's under the snow. So if she wants something greener that will last longer, so I would, what I'd recommend is, is mow that at a, uh, you know, at about an inch above the ground, mow it down, get an aerator, aerate your soil, top dress it. uh, Well, first, before you do aerate it, and then sprinkle in some grass seed that you like. You know, whether it be a bluegrass blend, I would go with something that's a little hardier and a little more drought resistant. See your local or independent garden shop. They've got some great grasses and you'll tell them what you want. And are they very thirsty? The, well, the natural it, question, of course, is about water. Well, all grasses are going to need water to get started, but there's going to be many that are going to be drought tolerant, not, you know, not totally resistant to drought, but drought tolerant. And those are the ones I'd recommend interceding into those little holes that you've aerated, and then you top dress it with some good topsoil um, on top of that, and then water it, and it will grow in and blend in with that older grass. So you have a tapestry. If you, you do, will. and, and the th- I recommend that because it's a lot less labor intensive than removing all the those weeds and starting all grasses you don't like and starting all over again. On Twitter, user xwhatever asked, what are some good alternatives to lawns for Colorado's climate? Well, you know, I, I think a garden, <laughs> you know, a vegetable garden you can eat, you know. And if you don't like the look of a vegetable garden, it doesn't have to be in rows and boxes. It can be freeform. And you can intersperse it with herbs and flowers. I mean, you can have a nice, nice landscaped area. I love light 
uh, you know, some small height berms, which would be a raised area. Okay. And you could, in that, you could plant it on the edges. You could plant some flowering shrubs, some dwarf flowering shrubs. In the middle, you might have your tomato plant or a squash or zucchini. Inter, inter blend those all together with some herbs, and that way you can enjoy them all together. Before the break, you talked about crowding microgreens, that that was okay. But I recall that one of your big lessons to people is don't crowd your garden. Correct. Because you really are doing a disservice to what you're planting. You are. And the reason we crowd microgreens is because we're going to harvest them at an immature state and be done with it. They're not going to get huge. But if I grew this in this this tray, these are now about six inches tall. If I grew these out to maturity, each one of them, I would lessen my harvest considerably. So what I would do is I would take and plant them and space them accordingly four, five, six inches apart so they can grow nice and tall. Okay. We have been entirely too healthy. Well, let's talk (laughs) of microgreens. I want to talk to you about... Hops. Yes. Home brewers in Colorado are growing vines in their backyards. Yes. Actually, they're called bines, B-I-N-E-S, instead of vines. They don't have the tendrils like some vining things do. They have these little, they have these little uh, hairy things that kind of attach to things. But um, now is the time, and I want to tell the listeners, you have to buy them now because the, 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 the rhizomes that you buy the are, rhizomes. On, the, yeah, are only available March and April. After that, you got to wait till next year. So forget it. So buy them, find it, and get it today. And you'll the hops plants are male and female. But when you buy them from a grower, you will get a rhizome that's only a female, which will produce the cones that you can use for beer. All right. So wait, uh, you you've lost me a bit, but okay. I, I don't have much of a green thumb. Rhizomes are what? Use the rhizomes are, are little, it almost looks like a piece of a stem. Okay, it's an underground stem, and it has some sprouts on it. And you do not need in your garden a male and female, or do you? No, you do not, because okay. you don't want them to seed. You want them to be basically without seed, because a seed will cause beer to be bitter. Mm. And some off taste, not just bitter, but off tasting, because sometimes you do want a bitter beer. And how much do you need to actually brew beer? Um, you know, I don't know how. I'm not a I'm not a, a beer brewer, so I don't know. But I would think that probably five to six binds or rhizomes would give the average homeowner enough to to uh, to grow. Because you off of each bind, you can get two to three pounds of hops hop cones at the end of the season. From beer to marijuana. And uh, the fact that the growth of that industry, uh, pun intended, has actually made it easier to grow vegetables indoors. It has. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, because there's a lot of money behind the marijuana industry, and they've done a lot of research on lighting and indoor growing that, uh, that the industry itself for vegetables probably couldn't absorb that kind of research and time. So what and, have you seen in terms of progress? Well, some of the best lighting out there is the LED lights. We don't recommend those because they're so bright and there's a big cost, uh, a capital investment at the beginning to get a really good case of LED lights. They're very efficient. Uh, Plants grow well. We recommend the T5HO light bulb, and it's a skinny, a very skinny fluorescent light bulb, but it's still efficient enough and very affordable. And you can buy those at your local big box stores uh, uh, for like $100 for a a four, four light bulb, four fixture set that you just grow your plants under. And these were started under T5HO lights. These microgreens you brought. T5HO. T5, high high output is what they are. So you have to get the T5HO fixture and T5HO lights. And that's something that, what, five years ago was just not as accessible? Right. It wasn't. And, uh, you know, now they, you know, fluorescent light bulbs got kept getting skinny. Remember those big fat ones are uh-huh. T12s, and then they got skinnier and skinnier, and now T5 uh, grow very well. Another question about peppers. Sure. This one comes from our own Kara Schiff, 
uh, one of our engineers here at Colorado Matters. She has tried growing hot peppers, bell peppers. She tried an heirloom variety that's supposed to produce big, plump peppers. And instead, she got tiny ones, like <laughs> the size of golf balls. Oh, Any secret to growing peppers on the front range? Well, good, good, well-drained, rich soil. Um, and you need to plant sturdy uh, sturdy plants. So uh, if you plant a spindly plant, it'll struggle through the season. Okay. Uh, so you want to get a sturdy plant. Usually the nurseries do it well. If you have a greenhouse, you can get it growing well. So you get a nice sturdy six inch, four to six inch plant. You get it out at the right time. You have to have good, rich, friable, crumbly soil. And the plant- right time is? Probably the end of May. Uh-huh. And I plant those all under hoop tunnels. In other words, a plastic-covered hoop tunnel. Just get some PVC, half-inch, bend it over your, your bed, uh, get a 10-foot piece. It'll bend over, um, and then you cover it with uh, clear plastic, give a little ventilation on the ends, and you'll get great peppers. And that is to protect it from the elements? Protect it from hail, protect it from wind. And those are very crucial. Wind and hail, of course, will damage your peppers beyond repair. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome, Ryan. My pleasure. Larry Stebbins directs Pikes Peak Urban Gardens and teaches classes in Colorado Springs. He's author of The Backyard Vegetable Gardening Guide. And there's more of his advice at cprnews.org. You're my little potato. You're my little potato. You're my little potato. They dug you up. You come from underground. Our staff will be eating lettuce for days. Let us leave you with this song. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters. It's very big.